Thank you. Thank you, Father, for, for giving us a Redeemer. Thank you that though you are holy, you have promised us the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and to prepare us to see you face to face, to stir the same loving character in our hearts that beats in your own heart. Father, we pray that you touch our hearts through the power of your word this morning. Ask that we be drawn closer to you, that it would be your voice that we hear most clearly, Father. And may it lead us to a whole new life, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I have a question for you. If you had the opportunity, you had the, the capacity to kill Hitler before World War II came to completion, would you do it? You don't have to raise your hand. That might be a little awkward. Would you or would you not assassinate Hitler? You see, this was actually a serious question that a number of his leaders and a number of even church leaders grappled with. And one in particular was a guy by the name of Bonhoeffer who wrote The Cost of Discipleship. He was a pacifist, didn't believe that you should ever kill. But he actually said, you know, I know this is a sin, but I'm going to participate in an assassination plot because this just has to stop. I don't know what else to do. And so it happened in 1944 on July 20 that Hitler was meeting with some of his top leaders and there were a number of leaders who were in on a plot to assassinate Hitler, which didn't happen just once, but this is one of the final times and one of the biggest times where it happened, the most famous one. And so uh, a man walked in, one of the, the uh, leaders in the army, with a briefcase. And he walked in and he set it under the table where there was a map there and they were going to all meet with Hitler right there. And then he conveniently got a phone call and he had to exit the room. And as he exited the room, he immediately headed off to begin to set up a counter-government to take over after Hitler died. Because you see what was in that briefcase? It was a bomb. And he had the plan that that bomb was going to go off and Hitler would be assassinated. Well, another leader was trying to look at the maps with Hitler and he was having a hard time navigating this briefcase. And so he took it and he set it over here at a different place under the table. And because of that, this solid oak table was able to save Hitler's life from when the explosion happened. Others died in the explosion. Three others died. A lot of them were seriously injured. Hitler only ended up with a ruptured eardrum. And that afternoon, he was giving tours, I think it was to Mussolini or somebody that afternoon, about uh, to show him the, the, what had happened in the, uh, with a bomb explosion. Now, here's a fascinating thing. Uh, Greg Boyd captures this moment, and he says, the attempt to kill Hitler backfired terribly. Prior to that bomb going off, he goes on to describe how prior to that bomb going off, the advisors for Hitler were saying, okay, here's the thing. You're sending all of these resources into getting these Jews into concentration camps. And that's just got to stop because we're losing on the Russian front and on the other fronts. We need to put all of our resources into the battle and stop being so obsessed with putting Jews to death. And he was about to go along with what his advisors were saying. Hitler was going to back off on this final solution with uh, killing the Jews that until that bomb went off and he interpreted, he interpreted that to be a message from God telling him that he was in the right on doing what he was doing. 
In fact, he wrote this. I regard this as confirmation of the task imposed upon me by providence. Nothing is going to happen to me. The great cause which I serve will be brought through its present perils. And everything can be brought to good at the end. As I kill millions and millions of Jews. And Greg Boyd goes on to describe. So he actually increased and intensified the killing. The last year of the war was the most deadly in terms of the concentration camps. He actually doubled down on it. And so more people, many more people ended up dying than if the assassination attempt hadn't have happened. In fact, uh, he went and he rounded up, he had the Gestapo round up 7,000 from uh, military leaders and church leaders and other people and brought them all together. And then out of that 7,000, 5,000 were put to death. These weren't the Jews. These were his leaders and people that he said they're to blame for this assassination plot. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was actually one of those who was uh, tried and put to death, not for that exact cause, but he was, he was a part of those that ended up losing his life. And Revelation captures something fascinating that I think helps us as we unpack this third angel's message. Yes, we're still talking about the third angel's message. And this is why, for me at least, because I don't often think about it. I haven't often talked about it. But this is the gospel. It is good news. It is the good news of who Jesus is. So we're in for some good news this morning, but we need to to buckle down to get it, okay? So I need you to grab your Bible or pay attention on the screen, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. This is talking about the sea beast, this religious political power that that dominated throughout the dark ages and is still a, a presence today on the planet that will lead to a false system of worship. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names, what does it say? Can you read that with me? Have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Okay, so I need you to tuck that away. Okay, we have the book of life of the lamb slain from when? Hang on a second. When was the cross? It's not a trick question. 2,000 years ago, AD 27. So you have the cross event, but John says the lamb was slain from the very foundation of the world. Now let's keep reading. And he says something really important. We know that because of what he says next. He says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. How many of you have ears this morning? All right, you're listening up because John has something important to say to you. Jesus would often say this when he was talking. He'd say, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And, And John would say this. If anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is important what he has to say next. He says this. He who leads into captivity will go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Do any of you know where he's quoting from right there? He's quoting from Jesus. Do you remember on the night of the betrayal? As Peter gets out the sword and he tries to chop off the head of the the high priest's servant. And as he just gets an ear, Jesus says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, he who leads into captivity will go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. And then notice what it says next. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Here here is the endurance. Here, here, Here are those who refuse to participate in the tit for tat. 
who refuse to participate in, in what's going to go down in the end as, as more and more violence, more and more, uh, we'll look at other things that, that come out in the end, but here is the patience, the endurance, those who don't participate in this system of coercion that's going to happen in the end. Now, that last line, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Have you heard that verse before? Something like it? Notice in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who, and it adds something here, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So here you have a a parallel to this whole idea that, hey, he who kills with a sword is going to come back on them. He who takes captive is going to end up being taken captive. Here's the patience of the saints. Here's those who don't participate in that madness. And then in chapter 14, verse 12, you see this parallel. He again brings us back to that same point. He says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. But here's the thing. This verse comes at the conclusion of the third angel's message. And a lot of commentators, a lot of Christians have looked at the third angel's message like this. Okay, so God has his cup of wrath and people are not accepting his love. He's pursuing them in love and People don't accept that love, and once that rejection reaches a certain level, God will get upset enough that he will say, okay, you lost your chance, and so now I'm going to torture you, because it says he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone throughout eternity. So uh, uh, this is the picture of what God is going to do that a lot of people have. Thankfully, Revelation means what it means, it doesn't always mean what it says. John, when he started it off, he said, I've written these things to symbolize to you the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are going to be. Thankfully, as we look at these things, we can recognize that there isn't just, uh, that that John means what he means. And let's see if that that can come out again more clearly. We've been looking at this um, for, I think this is our sixth, sixth, fifth or sixth time looking at it. So if you've missed some of those, go on YouTube and you can catch up with where we've talked about uh, the cup of wrath. We've talked about the concept of of fire and torment. We've talked about these things so far. And, And here's the thing. I keep talking about it because it really is good news. It really is. I don't know if you've recognized this yet, but the world needs to know that we have an, a good God. And he has been mislabeled. He's been mischaracterized. There's been a lot of shame, uh, shameful things said about him. And he needs some good witnesses like you to set it straight. So let's go back and look at verse 10 again of the third angel's message. Just two verses before uh, that verse that we're very familiar with. It says this, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Now notice this is on an individual basis. This is talking about individual people. They are going to be tormented with fire and brimstone. Now here's where we're going to focus in today. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the... What? In the presence of the Lamb? Uh, Of all things in Revelation, you might expect it would say, in the presence of the lion. In the presence of some other fierce creature that could handle taking on this beast power and this dragon, you would expect something, uh, something forceful, something vicious. In the presence of the Lamb. Now let's think for a moment because sometimes we think that, hey, coming into the Lamb's presence is no big deal. But let's look in the Bible for a moment. When people came in contact 
with God. We talked about Isaiah. Do you remember what Isaiah goes on to say after he comes in contact with this holy, holy, holy uh, speaking seraphim and the, the glory of God filling the earth? Yeah. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Of course, the good news is that then the seraphim come and take a coal from the altar and cleanse his lips and then send him out as a missionary. That person who was undone, that person with unclean lips found grace in the presence of God. But think of somebody else. Daniel, what happened with Daniel when he came in contact with, I believe, the pre-incarnate Christ? Daniel in chapter 10 says, my comeliness became in me corruption. (laughs) Anything good in me, it was like corruption now. And this is Daniel who, one of the few characters in the Bible, there's nothing bad said about him. There's no sins recorded about him. Most all characters in the Bible, there's some, some story there that we can say, ah, this is where they fell. And even the princes, they look for anything that Daniel's doing wrong. They can't find a thing unless it has to do with the law of his God. So Daniel said, my comeliness became corruption. Peter, when Jesus caught all the fish, he said, I'm a sinful man. Somebody, and he, then he says, Jesus, depart from me. But he's laying at Jesus' feet, and thankfully Jesus didn't leave him. Um, somebody else mentioned the, the moment this morning in, in our first service, the uh, moment in, this, in the temple, when Jesus cleansed the temple. When all of the Pharisees ran away from him, all the scribes and leaders, the money changers, they're running from Jesus. There's something about his presence that we don't want to just take lightly. Number four, uh, John. You remember, he has a similar experience to Daniel chapter 10. He sees a similar representation of Jesus. That's why we believe Daniel chapter 10 is talking about Jesus. But he has eyes of fire. He has this, this glorious appearance And John just falls at his feet as though dead. You know what Jesus does? He reaches out and he touches him. He says, don't be afraid. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the one that's worthy, not you, John. Go ahead, stand up in my presence. You can trust in me. So we have this picture in Revelation chapter 14 that this being tormented with fire and brimstone is happening in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now this, this phrase, in the presence of the Lamb, Angel Ro- uh, Angel Rodriguez, who worked for a number of years with the BRI Institute, he wrote a great paper on the third angel's message, and he broke down this phrase, presence of the Lamb. And there's two other times, you can search for this, that it's used in the book of Revelation. Two other times. And let's look at those really quickly. In Revelation chapter 5, there's this throne room uh, that is revealed in Revelation chapter 4. And then in Revelation chapter four, 5, um, John sees this scroll in the right hand of God. And as he sees this scroll, it represents the history of nations and, and the future of the nation. It represented the destiny of planet Earth, this covenant scroll. And it's sealed, and there's nobody found in heaven or on earth or anywhere that can open this, this scroll. And so John's reaction is, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Nobody worthy. Absolutely nobody worthy. And so John is weeping, knowing that that scroll can't be open. But uh, immediately after that, he's told, don't weep because there's the lion." Of the tribe of Judah, he's overcome so as to be able to take the scroll and to unseal it. And then John 
looks, and what does he see when he looks? I guess I left that off there. He looks, and he sees a lamb. He heard that it was a lion, and then he looks, and he sees a lamb as if it had been slain, standing in the midst of the throne with the seven spirits. Worthy is the lamb. And so immediately, the uh, elders around the throne, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they break out in song. Notice the, the keynote of this song, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You are worthy. Because you laid down your life for us, to redeem us. You are worthy. Revelation chapter 7 is the other place where we find this. We find this great multitude because when we think about standing in God's presence, it can be an intimidating thing. And we think, I don't know. I don't know if I could stand in his presence. Well, thankfully, in Revelation 7, we have this picture that that 144,000 is a symbolic number for what verse 9 says. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Is that a number that you think you might be able to be a part of? You think you, you could have some hope that maybe there's enough space for you this morning? A number which no man could number, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There it is again. In the presence of the Lamb, all of the redeemed standing there clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then this question is asked to John, well, who are these that overcome? How do they get here? Why is it that they're able to stand here? And John is t- says, I don't know. You, you've got to tell me the answer to that. I have no idea. Uh, well, before that, they, they cry out, standing there, that massive multitude cries out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to us who are standing here before the throne. Is that what they said? Okay, just making sure. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's by his grace, by his strength, by his power that we are standing here. And then when he's asked that question and he asked for the answer, so the angel said to me, these are the ones who come out of great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's based upon what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This is why we are able to stand in the presence of the one who is a consuming fire. We looked at this a few weeks ago about Isaiah chapter 33, where it's the righteous who are dwelling with a consuming fire throughout eternity. Who can dwell in his presence? It's the righteous. It's those who have been transformed by this character of love, who see the king in his beauty, and who aren't running and crying for the rocks to fall on them. So, uh, verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. We can be in his presence and it can be the most joyful thing in the world, in the universe, that we can possibly imagine. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But at the same time, uh, I don't have this verse on there, but Psalm chapter 68 uh, actually tells us, I think it's verse 2 and 3, that the wicked will melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. Same place, same location, same uh, outside influence, but there's something different inside. This is what matters in the end. 
It's what we have allowed the lamb to do inside of us. So we see that there are some in the presence of the lamb, the one who died to redeem them, that will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Now, if we were to take this literally to think that this is an unending torment, can you imagine what eternity would be like? Throughout eternity, there's some who believe that, you know, God will keep this fire going that will, and he will sustain souls in that fire to be tormented and writhe in pain so that you will never be tempted again by sin because you'll look and say, that's miserable. I don't want that to happen to me. And then you can go on enjoying heaven while you watch your great uncle writhing in pain or your son that never accepted Jesus. It's a terrible picture of God that has made a lot of people run from God. It's not in the Bible. I'm here to tell you there is good news even about the torment of fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb. Angel Rodriguez talks about this phrase, in the presence of the Lamb. He says, they see the sacrifice of Jesus. As they're there in the presence of the Lamb, the wicked see the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, this is extremely important in the storyline of Revelation. It's important that we capture this phrase, that it's in the presence of the Lamb. The one who died to save you. The wicked are being taken back to the most profound manifestation of love, God, uh, of the love of God in cosmic history. Now, notice what he goes on to say. And that experience will bring the cosmic conflict to a peaceful end. You think that's true? Is the cosmic conflict going to come to a peaceful end? Or is God going to show up and force the wicked to... uh, I don't know. Is he going to take them captive and use his sword on them? What's going to happen in the end? Will the conflict come to a peaceful end? Is Angel Rodriguez exaggerating here about how the conflict is going to end? Will it truly be a peaceful end in the great, of the great controversy? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Conflicts on earth don't end peacefully. We don't tend to to end a war where everybody agrees. That's just not the way things tend to happen. So let's look at this final battle, the final battle that's recorded in Revelation chapter 20. This is after, now we'll have to come back sometime and look in more detail at Revelation chapter 20, but this says that after the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of the wicked, the wicked and the righteous are now alive. The righteous are coming back from heaven in the new Jerusalem, and they, the city is descending on this planet. Now, if this sounds foreign to you, I'd love to sit down with you and we can just read it through and, and, and hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense to you. Or pick up the book, Great Controversy, and read the chapter, The Controversy Ended, because it describes this in a beautiful way. So, the city's coming down, the righteous are in it, and there is something that happens to all the wicked. They have resurrected and they are there around the city. Verse Oh, I guess I don't have those there. Actually, let's just go there really fast. Revelation chapter 20, because uh, there's a key part that I want you to, to, to catch here. Revelation chapter 20. And we will look at, uh, starting in verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. 
Friends, there's room before the throne. There's a great multitude there. There's also room in another multitude. You have the choice. And I hope you'll choose the multitude that's around the throne. Because there's a multitude whose number is as the sand of the sea. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. But, but hang on, he, he doesn't just leave it there because he, he goes on to describe what this fire coming down out of heaven is like in verse, starting in verse 11. Now you remember that a few weeks ago we looked at what fire can represent in the Bible. Do, do, does anybody remember some of the representations of fire? Anybody remember? Love, right? So in Song of Solomon chapter 8, we found that love is like an, God's love is like an unquenchable fire. Anything else? His law on Mount Sinai was given. It was a fiery law. And we talked about how the law is like a mirror that reveals who we are, James says. And love is also like a mirror. When you come in contact with God's love, you recognize that that's not who I am. Also, his glory was revealed as a consuming fire on the top of Mount Sinai. And they were afraid. They were terrified by it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we can be transformed from glory to glory as we behold his glory as in a mirror. As we're looking at this, this glory, it reveals who we are, and the Spirit wants to touch us and to transform us into that same image of glory. Um, and we also saw how God himself is seen as a consuming fire. So keeping all of those things in mind, as well as the other things we've talked about with Isaiah chapter 33, let's jump down to verse 11. This is what takes place. It unpacks that verse when it says, Then fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whom the, whose face the earth, the heaven, fled away, and there was found no place for them. You see, suddenly this, this massive army is surrounding the city, and they're, they're headed to say, We can conquer. The, Satan is stirring them up, saying, He's deceiving them, it says, and and getting them to think, we can go and we can take the city. We can overcome this city. And how does God respond to that? With a revelation of who he is. There's a great white throne, and notice, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There's something about that face of infinite love, the face that that laid down his life for his creatures, and there was found no place for them. It's the saddest words, maybe, in all of Scripture. Can you imagine coming to recognize something that the the God of the universe is self-sacrificing love and you've been living on the the principle of selfishness, on self-preservation, on watching out for yourself and suddenly you recognize that he permeates the entire universe, that in him we live and move and breathe and have our being, that he's given you a probation time that's like this veil that you've been able to go on and suddenly you realize that now you need to come to terms with the fact of what the universe is all about and what alone sustains life which is love because sin the wages of sin is death death comes from not from god but from sin itself in itself it inherently produces death as james says so there was found no place for them 
We continue on, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, which, do you remember that phrase from the beginning? It's okay, you're still good students. You remember the phrase from the very beginning, Revelation chapter 13, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the, the world. Suddenly, they get this panorama of all of the great controversy. Suddenly, is revealed to them who Jesus is and what the redemption story has looked like. They see the fall of Adam and Eve. They see as they take that fruit and they see how God provided instantly the sacrifice. He provided the lamb which clothed them with, with skins. And he, they, they watch as, as God chooses Abraham. They watch as God uses him to hopefully be a blessing to the nations. They watch as, as God calls out a people out of Egypt. They watch him work throughout salvation history. And then the climax of all of that comes on the cross. As the lamb displays that God is selfless love. And that he himself tasted death for everyone so that none of us need to experience it. On the cross, what were some of the things that he cried out? He said, I thirst. The psalmist is the one who said, my soul thirsts for God. As the deer pants for the water burke, my soul longs for God. So you find Jesus saying, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He experienced that separation from the Father, that being the the Godhead being torn apart there on the cross. He experienced that separation, that that in and of itself is the only way that we can understand what the second death looks like, that we can understand what hell looks like, because there's only one being in all of this universe who has gone through that experience, and that is Jesus Christ. On the cross. Do you want to know what it looks like? Look at Jesus. He couldn't even feel the nails. He wasn't crying out about being whipped. It was the emotional trauma of experiencing the guilt of the sin of this world that was weighing down and pressing down upon his soul and that hid the face of the Father from him. As he bore that for you and me. Every sin that has happened throughout all of this sinful planet's history. And so in that moment, you imagine as these warriors, mighty warriors throughout history, I think Hitler's probably going to be there. I think uh, Nero's probably going to be there who burned Christians. I think you see all these men as they're charging the city. We can take the city. And suddenly, they see Jesus. They see this revelation that God is selfless love. And it's so hard for us to grasp. But love is stronger than the greatest army that can be mustered in the universe. Love is how God overcomes in the end. He doesn't come overcome by the same use of force that this army is doing. Instead, he overcomes by displaying his love in such a radical way that it creates an internal burning that is beyond what they can handle. And eventually, he puts them out of his, their misery as fire comes down from heaven out of God, from God, or from the presence of God. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. 
Colossians 2 verse 15 describes, I think, this on a grander scale. What we see in that moment as all of this host of evil charges the city. Notice what it says, disarms the battle, uh, those warriors. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the... You didn't get it. Triumphing over them by the... The cross, it is the love of Jesus displayed on the cross. It's God who said, I would rather that they exist than I exist. It's God who proved that he is self-sacrificing love. That overcomes absolutely every temptation in your life, every attack of the enemy. Knowing who God is changes everything. He disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so we find that what takes place as that army sees Jesus lifted up, as they see the cross, as they see the principles of love that the universe operates on, they say this, therefore God, notice Paul records this, therefore God has also highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, how many knees? Every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, and those on earth, and of those where? Hang on. Does your Bible say the same thing mine says? Of those in heaven, and those on earth, those under the earth? Who's that talking about? That's talking about the wicked. That's talking about the demons. That's talking about those who have rejected Jesus. In that moment, they all bow the knee and they all are there on their knees before Jesus. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even the wicked, even Satan himself is going to confess in the end that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ah, it's incredible. This great white throne from whose uh, face everyone flees away from, the wicked that is, and there was found no place for them in all the vast universe. No place for selfishness. No place for lawlessness. No place for people to watch out for themselves while they push others down, while they hurt others. Jesus says, no, I want a kingdom that is based on self-sacrificing love. And so I'm going to allow the wages of sin to have their effect, which is death. Ty Gibson says this way, psychologically and emotionally, those people standing there in the presence of God, they are left with only the capacity for shame in his presence. Everything in them is urgent to flee away from the one who was good to them while they hated him. The guilty conscience cannot endure the presence of the one who gave his life for them while they lived for themselves. This God of infinite love, he was living, they're going to see the moments in their life where he was pursuing them in love while he was taking care of them and they were living selfishly. I don't want to be in that moment on the outside of the city. I want to be inside with Jesus. How about you? Eternal love itself by its very nature is utter condemnation to sin itself, sin and selfishness. Love itself is the consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. It is by contrast, not by sameness, that God's righteousness is destructive to sin. And friends, this is not understood by Christianity. You see, throughout world history... There has been this idea that what we need is a more powerful hero who can come in and destroy the bad guys. Probably most movies you've watched, any superhero, 
they always use violence in order to end the bad guy's reign of terror. Isn't that true? Myths are about that. Legends are about that. And army after army after army has attempted that same thing throughout history. But the reality is that God's selfless love, non-coercive love alone, will overcome in the end. The Great Controversy, page 678, the final paragraph says this, the Great Controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space, from the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love. That's where you are destined for. And it's not about some arbitrary thing where if you just say the right words and believe the right thing, that Jesus will save you on that day. He wants to transform you as you look to the Lamb who takes away the sin in the world. He wants to heal your soul from this derangement of sin and selfishness. He wants to transform you from the inside out as you look and look and look to Jesus. We can come into his presence now. We can experience that now as we look to the cross every day so that on that day, we're going to be with those who are saying, that's Jesus. He died for me. He has won. He is worthy, and I will trust in him. All creation will one day bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including Satan. And the, the end of Satan, I really believe it is a peaceable end that we could look at uh, Ezekiel sometime where it actually says that, that fire comes out from him and consumes him. And it even says that, that those who were basically his helpers end up turning on him. And you can read that in the Great Controversy chapter, how his whole thing implodes on him. After he confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, then he goes and tries to stir them up one more time. <laughs> Nobody has it. They said, no, you're a liar. You're done. And there's a peaceable end to this final battle of the great controversy. Now, how about me? How about you? Does that only matter on that day? Is it only for my personal piety? Is it only for my day-by-day experience of looking to the cross? What difference does that make for my life when I walk out of the doors of this church? Romans chapter 12, verse 19. After saying, hey, don't resist an evil person. Live peaceably with all people, if at all possible. And a bunch of other beautiful exhortations that says this. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Let God handle the end of this battle. Let him bring a peaceable end. You're not very good at that. Have you noticed that? I'm not very good at it. How often do I use my tongue like a sword? And you know what I've discovered? If I line somebody out because of all the reasons that I am right, I have yet to experience them come to me and say, you know what, you're right. Oh, okay, now I accept it. I don't know why I don't get it enough to actually do that, every, to not do that again, but I'll go back again and say, no, 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 this is the reasons. And I'll argue with somebody and I'll put them down and I'll try to tear them down with my tongue and I find that it doesn't win any hearts. Have you experienced that before? Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feel good feelings about him. No? What does it say? If your enemy is hungry, go cook him a meal. If your enemy is thirsty, then then go find something to give him to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coal 
coals of fire on his head. And you can hope that those are coals of fire that will be a cleansing, judging process in their hearts that will, whoa, they'll realize how much they need to change and experience Jesus too. But ultimately, it may be that they don't. They harden their hearts. They reject it. And in the end, that buildup of wrath, like Romans 2 talks about, will be what consumes them in the end. Then it says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how God operates. And there's been a bad story told about God, that he ends this with the same type of thing that's been used throughout history to try to end conflicts, but he does something better than that. He uses his love, he uses his presence as a consuming fire to put an end peaceably to this battle. So Jesus, Jesus says the same thing. You might be thinking, well, that's Paul, and you know, he has a lot of confusing things that he says. Matthew chapter 5 says, I say to you, love your enemies. Does he say just feel good feelings about them? Bless those who curse you. If somebody says something bad about you, the best possible thing you can do is to say some good things about them. To go out there and spread some good rumors. To tell, tell the world the good things you've seen about that person. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Do good. Actions. Go and do something beneficial for that person that you can't stand. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. One of the most powerful things you can do that will change your heart and mind is to pray for the people that are most difficult in your life. I'm not pointing fingers at you, friends. God gives me these messages because I need it more than anybody else. But I think we all need it. We need to experiencing the transforming love of God because this is what it goes on to say. You want to be a son and daughter of God? It says, do these things, love your enemy, and he, earlier he's saying, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If somebody asks for or takes your, your coat, give them your tunic too. Just give and give and give and love even the most difficult. This isn't saying to, to allow abusers to continue. This is, is saying find helpful ways to benefit the lives of people who have hurt you or who have, have been your enemy. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Did you see the rain on, uh, was that Monday? Was it raining everywhere? Pretty much. Maybe there was a few places it wasn't raining. When a rainstorm comes, Jesus doesn't pick houses. He doesn't pick certain gardens. Our farm isn't doing as well as it is because God says, ah, I'm going to send them rain, but not the neighbor down the street. He's good. He lavishes his goodness continually and constantly. And Jesus holds that up as an example. He says, you do the same even for the unjust people in your life. Just constantly do them good. Now, Tim Keller, uh, extrapolating on this, says, love is an action. So often we think, well, I, I can't stand that person. I don't like thinking about them. I don't like dealing with them. I can't handle this. Love is an action, as you see Jesus describing it, that leads to a feeling. Not a feeling that leads to an action. You can walk out of here and love people that you don't feel like you love. Because you're called to feed the hungry, <laughs> The hungry enemy, you're called to minister to their needs to benefit them in every way possible. Medical Missionary, page 210, has the flip side of this. Should Jesus deal with us as we deal with one another, not one of us would be saved. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? The way that I deal with people in my life who are difficult 
If Jesus dealt with me that same way, I wouldn't be saved. So Jesus is calling me. He says, therefore, concluding this passage, you will be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You are called to this maturity of love. Do you want that experience in your life? I long for it in my life. An active love that will change the world around me, that will heap coals of fire in love upon the most difficult people in my life, and that hopefully it will bring about repentance. If you want that, I want to invite you to stand as we read this uh, closing passage that, that ties this all together. As we talk about perfection, we talk about maturity, we talk about the love of God. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. Just read this with me. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Did you know you can have boldness to stand before his throne? Not boldness in yourself, but boldness in Jesus, in the worthiness of the Lamb. And love, as it matures in our hearts, it gives us boldness to the judgment. Go on and read the next line. Because as he is, so are we in this world. (laughs) Go and love like he loved, which meant laying down his life on the cross for those who were beating him, abusing him. And yet he did good to them until the very end, refusing to resort to self-preservation. Let's read the next slide. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. You don't want to be tormented with fire and brimstone. Perfect love, mature love, casts out fear so that you can with boldness stand before the throne on that day. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Let's pray to close and ask, well, let's read this last line. This is an important one. We love him because he first loved us. As we pray in closing, I just want to invite you to think about that incredible love that's going to be revealed. You will see that panorama one day. I guarantee it, no matter who you are, where you've come from, what you believe about Jesus, you will one day see Jesus on the cross. You're going to come in contact with that. And today he invites you to accept that as his offering of love for you. And to go from here and live a life of self-sacrificing love for everybody around you. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you for this infinite love. Thank you for inviting us into the presence of the Lamb who gave his life for us. Lord, help us to live with a consciousness of your presence as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Father, I just want to invite you right now, number one, to to give us an opportunity to say, I want to be inside the city, not outside. I want to accept Jesus today. Just go ahead and do that. Maybe you've never done that before. It's not about what you're going to do. It's about who he is. Go ahead and tell him, I accept you today. And now, Father, we also want to recognize that you've called us to love to live in the world the way you have, to love even our enemies. So right now, would you just impress upon our hearts in the silence of our own hearts, maybe somebody that we can write a card to, maybe pick up a caring card and write one. Maybe somebody that we can give a call. Maybe somebody that we can deliver a meal to. Not the people that are easy to love in our lives, but the people that we need to take some actions towards so that the feelings follow and we really grow to love them. Thank you, Jesus. You are worthy. 
Worthy is the Lamb. May we look and look and look. And in the process of looking, may we be so transformed that it becomes our delight to love even our enemies. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, I pray, as we go from this place. In the name of Jesus, amen.